Chapter Four of Fighting the Whales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fighting the Whales by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Four: Cutting in the Blubber and Trying Out the Oil. The scene that took place on board ship after we caught our first fish was most wonderful. We commence the operation of what is called cutting in, that is, cutting up the whale and getting the fat or blubber hoisted in. The next thing we did was to try out the oil or melt down the fat in large iron pots brought with us for this purpose. And the change that took place in the appearance of the ship and the men when this began was very remarkable. When we left port, our decks were clean, our sails white, our masts well scraped, the brass work about the quarter deck was well polished, and the men looked tidy and clean. A few hours after our first whale had been secured alongside, all this was changed. The cutting up of the huge carcass covered the decks with oil and blood, making them so slippery that they had to be covered with sand to enable the men to walk about. Then the smoke of the great fires under the melting pots begrimed the masts, sails, and cordage with soot. The faces and hands of the men got so covered with oil and soot that it would have puzzled anyone to say whether they were white or black. Their clothes too became so dirty that it was impossible to clean them. But indeed, whalemen do not much mind this. In fact, they take a pleasure in all the dirt that surrounds them, because it is a sign of success in the main object of their voyage. The men in a clean whale ship are never happy. When everything is filthy and dirty and greasy and smoky and black, decks, rigging, clothes, and person, it is then that the hearty laugh and jest and song are heard, as the crew work busily night and day at their rough but profitable labor. The operations of cutting in and trying out were matters of great interest to me the first time I saw them. After having towed our whale to the ship, cutting in was immediately begun. First, the carcass was secured near the head and tail with chains and made fast to the ship. Then the great blocks and ropes fastened to the main and foremast for hoisting in the blubber were brought into play. When all was ready, the captain and the two mates with Tom Lokins got upon the whale's body with long-handled sharp spades or digging knives. With these, they fell to work cutting off the blubber. I was stationed at one of the hoisting ropes, and while we were waiting for the signal to hoist away, I peeped over the side and, for the first time, had a good look at the great fish. When we killed it, so much of its body was down in the water that I could not see it very clearly. But now that it was lashed at full length alongside the ship, and I could look right down upon it, I began to understand more clearly what a large creature it was. One thing surprised me much. The top of its head, which was rough and knotty like the bark of an old tree, was swarming with little crabs and barnacles and other small creatures. The whale's head seemed to be their regular home. This fish was by no means one of the largest kind, but being the first I had seen, I fancied it must be the largest fish in the sea. Its body was forty feet long and twenty feet round at the thickest part. Its head, which seemed to me a great blunt, shapeless thing like a clumsy old boat, was eight feet long from the tip to the blowholes or nostrils, and these holes were situated on the back of the head, which at that part was nearly four feet broad. The entire head measured about twenty-one feet round. Its ears were two small holes, so small that it was difficult to discover them, and the eyes were also very small for so large a body, being about the same size as those of an ox. The mouth was very large, and the under jaw had great, ugly lips. 
When it was dying, I saw these lips close in once or twice on its fat cheeks, which it bulged out like the leather sides of a pair of gigantic bellows. It had two fins, one on each side, just behind the head. With these, and with its tail, the whale swims and fights. Its tail is its most deadly weapon. The flukes of this one measured thirteen feet across, and with one stroke of this it could have smashed our largest boat in pieces. Many a boat has been sent to the bottom in this way. I remember hearing our first mate tell of a wonderful escape a comrade of his had in the Greenland sea fishery. A whale had been struck, and after its first run they hauled up to it again and rowed so hard that they ran the boat right against it. The harpooner was standing on the bow already and sent his iron cleverly into the blubber. In its agony the whale reared its tail high out of the water, and the flukes whirled for a moment like a great fan just above the harpooner's head. One glance up was enough to show him that certain death was descending. In an instant he dived over the side and disappeared. Next moment the flukes came down on the part of the boat he had just left and cut it clean off. The other part was driven into the waves, and the men were left swimming in the water. They were all picked up, however, by another boat that was in company, and the harpooner was recovered with the rest. His quick dive had been the saving of his life. I had not much time given me to study the appearance of this whale before the order was given to hoist away, so we went to work with a will. The first part that came up was the huge lip fastened to a large iron hook called the blubber hook. It was lowered into the blubber room between decks, where a couple of men were stationed to stow the blubber away. Then came the fins, and after them the upper jaw, with the whalebone attached to it. The right whale has no teeth like the sperm whale. In place of teeth, it has the well-known substance called whalebone, which grows from the roof of its mouth in a number of broad, thin plates, extending from the back of the head to the snout. The lower edges of these plates of whalebone are split into thousands of hairs like bristles, so that the inside roof of a whale's mouth resembles an enormous blacking brush. The object of this curious arrangement is to enable the whale to catch the little shrimps and small sea blubbers, called medusae, on which it feeds. I have spoken before of these last as being the little creatures that gave out such a beautiful pale blue light at night. The whale feeds on them. When he desires a meal, he opens his great mouth and rushes into the midst of a shoal of medusae. The little things get entangled in thousands among the hairy ends of the whalebone, and when the monster has got a large enough mouthful, he shuts his lower jaw and swallows what his net has caught. The wisdom, as well as the necessity of this arrangement, is very plain. Of course, while dashing through the sea in this fashion with his mouth agape, the whale must keep his throat closed, else the water would rush down it and choke him. Shutting his throat, then, as he does, the water is obliged to flow out of his mouth as fast as it flows in. It is also spouted up through his blowholes, and this with such violence that many of the little creatures would be swept out along with it, but for the hairy-ended whalebone, which lets the sea-water out, but keeps the medusae in. Well, let us return to our cutting in. After the upper jaw came the lower jaw, and throat, with the tongue. This last was an enormous mass of fat, about as large as an ox, and it weighed fifteen hundred or two thousand pounds. After this was got in, the rest of the work was simple. The blubber of the body was peeled off in great strips, beginning at the neck and being cut spirally towards the tail. It was hoisted on board by the blocks, the captain and mates cutting, and the men at the windlass hoisting, and the carcass slowly turning round until we got an unbroken piece of blubber, reaching from the water to nearly as high as the main-yard arm. 
This mass was nearly a foot thick, and it looked like fat pork. It was cut off close to the deck and lowered into the blubber room, where the two men stationed there attacked it with knives, cut it into smaller pieces, and stowed it away. Then another piece was hoisted on board in the same fashion, and so on we went until every bit of blubber was cut off. And I heard the captain remark to the mate when the work was done that the fish was a good fat one, and he wouldn't wonder if it turned out to be worth three hundred pounds sterling. Now, when this process was going on, a new point of interest arose which I had not thought of before, although my messmate Tom Lokins had often spoken of it on the voyage out. This was the arrival of great numbers of seabirds. Tom had often told me of the birds that always keep company with whalers, but I had forgotten all about it until I saw an enormous albatross come sailing majestically through the air towards us. This was the largest bird I ever saw, and no wonder, for it is the largest bird that flies. Soon after that another arrived, and although we were more than a thousand miles from any shore, we were speedily scented out and surrounded by hosts of goonies, stinkards, haglets, gulls, pigeons, petrels, and other seabirds, which commenced to feed on pieces of the whale's carcass with the most savage gluttony. These birds were dreadfully greedy. They had stuffed themselves so full in the course of a short time that they flew heavily and with great difficulty. No doubt they would have to take three or four days to digest that meal. Sharks, too, came to get their share of what was going. But these savage monsters did not content themselves with what was thrown away. They were so bold as to come before our faces and take bites out of the whale's body. Some of these sharks were eight and nine feet long, and when I saw them open their horrid jaws armed with three rows of glistening white sharp teeth, I could well understand how easily they could bite off the leg of a man, as they often do when they get the chance. Sometimes they would come right up on the whale's body with a wave, bite out great pieces of the flesh, turn over on their bellies, and roll off. While I was looking over the side during the early part of that day, I saw a very large shark come rolling up in this way close to Tom Loken's legs. Tom made a cut at him with his blubber spade, but the shark rolled off in time to escape the blow. And after all, it would not have done him much damage, for it is not easy to frighten or take the life out of a shark. "'Hand me an iron and lime, Bob,' said Tom, looking up at me. "'I got a spite against that feller. He's been up twice already. Ah, hand it down here, and two or three of you stand by to hold on by the line. There he comes, the big villain.' The shark came close to the side of the whale at that moment, and Tom sent the harpoon right down his throat. "'Hold on hard!' shouted Tom. "'Aye, aye,' replied several of the men as they held on to the line, their arms jerking violently as the savage fish tried to free itself. We quickly reeved the line through a block at the four-yard arm and hauled it on deck without much difficulty. The scene that followed was very horrible, for there was no killing the brute. It threshed the deck with its tail and snapped so fiercely with its tremendous jaws that we had to keep a sharp lookout lest it should catch hold of a leg.' At last its tail was cut off, the body cut open, and all the entrails taken out. Yet even after this it continued to flap and thresh about the deck for some time, and the heart continued to contract for twenty minutes after it was taken out and pierced with a knife. I would not have believed this had I not seen it with my own eyes. In case some of my readers may doubt its truth, I would remind them how difficult it is to kill some of those creatures with which we are all familiar. The common worm, for instance, may be cut into a number of small pieces, and yet each piece remains alive for some time after. 
The skin of the shark is valued by the whalemen because, when cleaned and dry, it is as good as sandpaper, and is much used in polishing the various things they make out of whale's bones and teeth. When the last piece of blubber had been cut off our whale, the great chain that held it to the ship's side was cast off, and the now useless carcass sank like a stone, much to the sorrow of some of the smaller birds, which, having been driven away by their bigger comrades, had not fed so heartily as they wished, perhaps. But what was lost to the goals was gained to the sharks, which could follow the carcass down into the deep and devour it at their leisure. "'Now, lads,' cried the mate, when the remains had vanished, "'rouse up the fires, look alive, my hearties!' "'Aye, aye, sir,' was the ready reply, cheerfully given, as every man sprang to his appointed duty. And so, having cut in our whale, we next proceeded to try out the oil. End of chapter 4